Hey there, and welcome back to another exciting, special episode of A Conversation for One podcast. The podcast where I ramble on about topics such as horror and sci-fi multimedia, film franchises and universes, theme parks and Canadiana, and so much more. Now today, if you haven't already read the title, is the continuation of Perfect Horror, Chapter 2. So, if you haven't listened to the last episode, which I'm assuming you have, but if you haven't, go check that out. We have tons of fun guests on there. And yes, that's the surprise. We do have guests. I organized some guests to be on the show, and they were very, very pleasant and very accommodating, and they helped me out, and they just, oh, it's just wonderful. Their additions to the show are just the creme de la creme. If you're, if you're here for them, honestly, I wouldn't blame you if you fast forward to the end. Um, but yeah. And a big thanks again to the folks that did actually help me out. Uh, on our last episode, we have Lucas Two Blue from the Two Cast. That's Lucas McCormick. Uh, we have the lovely folks from Afro Horror Podcast. If you haven't listened to them, go check them out. Their first season just wrapped up, and they have some pretty amazing episodes. It's a little on the shorter side, but you know what? It packs a lot of punch for their small episodes. So both Two Cast movie reviews, solely movie reviews, is more like. Um, just all over the board, really great stuff. Afro horror, focusing on more of the uh, black community in horror films, really, really great. I enjoy that as well. Big thank you to Bill Byron Kucher. Uh, he's an amazing artist, as you heard in the intro for the last episode, and he gave his write-in, and I hope I didn't butcher it too badly. Um, I added as much emphasis in the, into the structure as I could. Uh, and then also big thank you to Derek Cook from Monster Kid Radio, one of my heroes, one of my favorite podcasts, uh, definitely somebody who inspired me to create a podcast of my own. It was a big honor to have him on here. Uh, so go check out Monster Kid Radio, similar to what I do, but he, like he did mention, he focuses on horror movies from yesteryear, and I think it goes up to the 60s. So it's anything from like the 1920s to the 1960s. If that floats your boat, definitely go check him out. And last but not least, Big thank you to Horror Haven Podcast. You guys are amazing. I definitely subscribed and I'm listening to the show now. You have a lot of great stuff on there. And I'd love to be a part of any one of your guys' shows uh, that I just mentioned. And if you want to be on my show again, you're always more than welcome. Thanks again, guys. Definitely go check out Perfect Horror, the first episode. I will have a link to it at the bottom of the uh the show notes, I guess, for this episode. Today on the show, I don't know if I want it. I was kind of thinking, you know, I might spoil it. I might not spoil it. But, you know, it was kind of a twist for the last episode. And because I'm really not giving this episode a lot of room to breathe from the last episode, I feel like I'll just tell you who I have for this episode. So to start, we have Mr. Scott Fawcett. Returning front of the show, you've heard him on both Kaiju Conversation and, and another Kaiju Conversation on this show. He's a great friend, very knowledgeable. He has contributed. We have Moon Patrol, who is Matt Cunningham, who is an amazing, amazing artist. He does a lot of collage work with a lot of horror inspiration. Very, very lucky and honored to have him onto the show. Uh, we have Full Price Podcast on the show. Uh, if you have not heard Full Price Podcast, I don't know what you're doing. Go give them a listen. You're going to hear all these people on here, by the way. So I really don't have to advertise them because you're going to be in love with all of their opinions, all their voices, their styles, etc. If you love Vincent Price, which you're lying to me if you say you don't, you got to go check out Full Price Podcast. I have been listening from start to finish. Huge fan. Now, we also have Cooper S. Beckett, which if you guys will remember... I know you guys didn't listen. You should be listening. I did a review on this. He did a, a book called 
Osgood is gone. His new book coming out is called Osgood Riddance, which he was a gentleman and a scholar. He gave me a copy of that book and I couldn't be happier. I'm a little stacked for time, but goddammit, I'm going to make some time to read that because it is good. He has some amazing opinions and a very amazing voice, but uh, you won't have to uh, take my word for it. You'll hear it soon enough. And last but not least, we have the very underground grungy artist, Flannel Log. He is uh, Theo Radomsky, actually is his name. I don't know if he wants me to use his real name. If not, I'll just leave his last name out here, but you can find him. He gave an amazing, amazing entry into the show, and it's and it's it's something else. You guys are going to love it. And uh, yeah, I mean horror is a huge huge topic and we know and we love horror and if we didn't we probably wouldn't be here and if you're here and you don't love horror thanks so much guys i'm taking it as you love me and so i'm very excited but horror as you know and i mentioned in the last episode is like an ever-spanding uh genre of film i mean it goes past film obviously into television and uh you know into books and as well as um well other media you know you have art you have podcasts even now it's just horror is huge so there's bound to be some perfect movies and everybody everyone is entitled to their opinion and if you do some more backing up other than just i think it's great because it's great and i like it because it's great as i did on one of the movies as i was listening to it like after when i was editing i was like oh god tyler why would you you can't just say something's great that's like film school 101 they tell you like hey if you're gonna do some uh, thesis work here you can't just say i liked it because it was good you gotta do some backup you gotta explain why you need to develop your argument and i didn't so much on one of the entries and if you listen to the last episode you'll definitely know which one i'm talking about but enough about me i think we're gonna have a great show today and i uh, honestly can't wait for you guys to listen we are on to some perfect horror so Without any further ado, let me jump into more of what I find to be perfect horror. What an excellent day for an exorcism. First on the list is one of my absolute favorite, favorite, favorite films. Now, this film is a classic, and uh, honestly, it is one of the safest choices I probably could have made. There's another one on here, which is absolute near and dear to my heart, um, but that is 1973's William Friedkin's The Exorcist. Now, I know what you're thinking. The Exorcist, God damn it! everybody says this movie is the best horror movie of all time. They say it's the scariest movie of all time. They say, you know, this actually scared people so much that they left the theater, and whether any of that is true, it's not important to me. It shouldn't be important to you. When you watch this film, if it does not leave an impression on you for one reason or another, then I don't know. I don't think horror's for you. I really don't. I know some people are into the extreme. I know some people are more into horror comedy. Uh, maybe possession films or ghost films or any sort of demonic films are not in your wheelhouse. 
I think The Exorcist is the one that ties everyone together. Now you have Linda Blair. She is the amazing breakout star in this film. As we all know, she is the, uh, she's Reagan. She is the one possessed by Bazuzu. I think I'm saying it, it's not Bazazu. I think it's Bazuzu. Bazuzu, God, that's catchy to say. She is possessed and we have the wonderful Max Foncito. He comes in, he is the exorcist and the wonderful makeup done by Dick Smith uh, makes him look old as hell. So Max Foncito, for all we know, has been old as hell since he was 22. He just is always old. Regardless, we have right off the right off the bat. Let's just cover a couple amazing things. We have amazing, amazing cinematography, amazing editing, amazing makeup, amazing music, amazing score. I guess score more than music. Um, we have an amazing script. We have an amazing director, and we have just an overall well-rounded film. Now, there's a couple things about the film that make it perfect to me. Uh, the first thing that makes it perfect is the actual character that Jason Miller plays, Father, or I guess, I think he's, I don't know if he has his doctorate. Anyways, Father Damien Karras. His story arc, I swear to God, when you were a kid, so here's a little background. The first time I saw The Exorcist, I remember it very clearly. I was in grade nine. It was the first year that I did not go trick-or-treating. Again, this is just context, doesn't make the movie perfect, but I do remember it was the first year that I did not go trick-or-treating and I stole some beers from my dad's fridge and I brought them over to my buddy's house and there was four of us there and we watched The Exorcist. We rented it from VideoQuest, which was our local video store. Yes, renting a movie. And um, we threw it on and we had all never seen it. We had all never seen it and we all heard this is the scariest movie. And to be fair, we watched the film and you're wrapped up more, I find, when you're younger in Reagan's story and like how uh, Reagan slowly becomes more possessed and how just how effective and how terrifying she is and the force behind her is. But I find now, also, I loved it in grade nine, by the way, that absolutely just changed my life. But I find now and since I've been getting older, so let's say between the ages of like 18 to like now 26 years old. Wow. Again. Not old, just crazy to think back. But now when I watch it, especially recently, I am so attached to him. It's, again, it's so much more than just a normal horror film. You are bound to the story arcs and the character development, and you are involved and roped in and attached and other synonyms for hooked in to the characters. He does not know what he wants in life. And it's something that's tied in later on with the Exorcist TV show, that first season. If you haven't given that a shot, definitely go do that. But that's not the time for this. He loses the sight of God. You know, like he doesn't know, is God real? Is this my purpose? Have I wasted my life? Like he loses the feeling of belonging. He loses the, the basically the desire to go on and he feels passionless and he thinks almost like he's made a mistake. Maybe this wasn't his calling and he's just him and his mom and you're so attached and you feel um, the emotional weight of him as a character and you feel his struggles and his passion. And ultimately I find the exorcist becomes his story. The older you get, it is his story. It is not about Linda Blair. It's not about like Reagan, the Reagan character. It is about Karis. And I think once you realize that that movie is about him, it changes everything. He's kind of thrown into the situation with no expertise. 
he just feels for this girl and it's ultimately at the end by the way good lord if you did not listen to that first episode let me just tell you right now before we jump into this huge spoilers spoilers on my end spoilers on the guest's end there's gonna be huge spoilers now with that out of the way when he kills himself (laughs) when he kills himself when he's like take me and you see the spirit go into him and he's like no and he jumps out the window and kills himself which exorcist three i'm not even going to touch on that but when he kills himself that part to me is more memorable it's has stuck with me a lot lot longer than just having reagan being like gosh golly what happened because like who gives a fuck there's some people that the movie is reagan but for me it is karis so now on top of that all the character arcs are perfect so much of that film is quotable so much of that um it's it's got this very atmospheric vibe that you could just put on that film for a halloween party Uh, you probably shouldn't because people just stop doing what they're doing but you could have that on and just all of the scenes alone are just they just scream horror it is, it is such a full goddamn embodiment of what horror is. And again, I don't want to just say it's great because it's great. But Linda Blair, I'm not knocking her. She kills it from the beginning when she's getting her MRI and CAT scans to when she's fully just covered in like Dick Smith uh, makeup and effects. And she goes hard. If you've seen this film, you know, you know, she says, your mother sucks cocks in hell. The sow is mine. Let Jesus fuck you. This is a girl in the 70s doing this. Now, if you'll remember back to when Kick-Ass came out and Glowy Grace Moretz, I think that's pretty sure her name, when she was Hit Girl, people were like, oh my God, like losing their minds. And it's happened since, right? There's been some younger actors that do stuff that's ballsy. But think back, this is the 70s. It's the 70s. And we're having Linda Blair take a crucifix and ram it into her vagina saying, let Jesus fuck you powerful powerful imagery to say the very least um but that's crazy and it takes a lot out of an actor to do that and understand what you're doing and make that message just shoot across the film into your eyeballs and into your heart and into your mind and that is where it has stayed just everything that linda blair does in that film sticks with you everything that uh, jason miller does as doctor uh, as father Karras sticks with you Max von Sydow's character, he's like the powerful old sage character, nails it as always. He's always great. So yeah, you just get like a great cast of characters. It's very believable. And that's the thing too. And and that's something I like. I've made it very clear, I thought in my last episode, that being grounded and being attached and feeling the stakes and growing with the characters and feeling with the characters is very important. And I think this film, for as over the top as it gets, still always manages to feel very grounded and i think that's why it stood the test of time that it never feels like a period piece it never feels dated and it never feels like this wouldn't happen now that wouldn't have happened then it just feels like it is a very accessible film and it's accessible on all levels because it's done perfectly it's done right and without mumbling on and rambling too much just the score alone just the piano score will haunt you after you watch the film it is that so deep rooted into your psyche after you watch it that I find that this film is perfect. It's absolutely perfect. And I couldn't recommend it enough. So yeah, The Exorcist, check it out. I think it's perfect. I think you're making a mistake. I think you really want to talk to me. 
Sorry, I have three other interviews to do before this party's over. Yep, they're not working on something that'll change the world as we know it. They say they are. Yeah, but they're lying. There is a limit, even to the imagination. Human teleportation, molecular decimation, breakdown, and reformation is inherently purging. Where our greatest creations meet our deepest fears. Something went wrong, Seth. When you went through, something went wrong. You are about to go beyond that limit. Now, the next film on this list is another heavy hitter. And looking at my list now of what I picked for the first episode and what I'm picking for this episode, this episode definitely has a lot more um, heavy hitters, if you will. Just a lot of movies that I find are not only huge films, but are the best of the best. And not not just like perfect, but to me are like high tier films that are rewatchable, enjoyable. There's a difference between loving a movie and finding a film perfect. And I find these movies fit the bill more so than the first episode. Not saying I'm not knocking those films, but these films are great. And this next film that we're talking about is from 1986. It is Arguably David Cronenberg's masterpiece. I am a Cronenberg fan for the most part anyways. It's 1986's The Fly. Now, if you've seen this film, you know that Jeff Goldblum is an absolute beast and he comes into this film hard. It is pure Goldblum. The, mm, yes, 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 mm, yeah, oh, maybe. I'm using my hands, by the way. Uh, and that's not Jeff Goldblum, that's me. Uh, yes, uh, mm, 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 yes. Everything, all of that shit, I eat it up. Um, Jeff Goldblum absolutely kills this in this movie. It is not just him being a, a caricature. This is Jeff Goldblum in his absolute peak. And you've got, it's not just him, you have Gina Davis in a, just an all-out powerful role. And, I, and I've mentioned this in a very, very early episode, and I would not subjugate you guys to listen to it, but Gina Davis, when she was in her prime, she was actually a pretty good actress, and she looked decent, like, believably good looking <laughs> and I don't mean to slam anybody but I feel like with age she has gotten less good looking and less good at acting and, and okay you know what I'm probably going to edit this out but she is peak Gina Davis if that makes sense I don't mean she's a smoke show I just mean like she is at the high point of every point for her career in this film and she gives it everything everything from being um, hard to get like a reporter to being just emotionally traumatized and involved um, girlfriend slash ex-girlfriend, I guess. So, right, you know what? I didn't even cover what The Exorcist was about. So let me just do that real, real quick and before we jump into The Fly. So The Exorcist, if you haven't seen it and you just weren't buying that how perfect it was, it is this little girl named Reagan who um, she plays around with a Ouija board and her friend is Captain Howdy. And eventually she invites Captain Howdy in and Pazuzu, which is the demon who's claiming to be the devil, takes Reagan. And Reagan is basically fighting for her body because it is taking it and they try all this medical stuff. And she's like, she's like <laughs> quoting American World, she's burning up. She's like, she feels like an awful pain. She's not in control anymore. So the mom is like, okay, uh, I guess medical science is not going to help me. So let's turn to religion. And they're like, have you tried an exorcist? And they're like, we don't do that. But I could find you somebody that could enter these two priests. One is the old master, like I was saying. And then you have young Karis. And basically they are fighting that demon with everything they got to save this girl. It is wonderful. 
just well executed check out the exorcist jumping forward onto the fly here you have dr brendel oh what is his first name brendel uh brendel fly uh gosh hold on a sec here i'm gonna give it a quick pause i was gonna try not to but i'm gonna do a quick pause seth seth brendel so his name is seth brendel so he's basically the movie starts out they're in this like weird sort of venue event and uh he's he, he's dressed well but he he looks a little uh out of place uh, compared to the fancy dressed people there and gina davis kind of bumps into him and he knows who she is and he's like hey uh what if i told you that i could like show you a, i could show you something that would change your career and would give you the best story that you could ever have and she's like yeah basically like kick rocks right like jog on like like go ahead right and he's like no 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 i can show you something like we'll have a nice espresso i have a nice espresso machine i love this movie by the way if you can't tell and she's like okay why he's like i can uh i don't know if he tells her that right there but anyways he's like basically i i can teleport and they're like i have to see this shit to believe it and he's like okay come on and uh he's like right now i can i can't do anything living but i can do stuff that's inanimate and so he transfers like, I don't know, like a ball or whatever into the into the other teleporter. And she's like, holy fuck. And he's like, yep, it's not a magic trick, though. And he's like, but I can't get something right where I can do it living. It's always kind of different. And he puts a stake in there and they do the stake and he's like, try it. And Gina Davis is like, oh, it, it, it tastes off like something something's off. And he's like, yeah, it's because the computer is doing what it thinks it is. Like it's breaking it down and it's putting back together what it thinks it is, but it's missing something and that's why he can't replicate life. Uh, there's a horrific scene in there, which let me just get into it right now. So cutting myself off, one of the best things about this film is the makeup. Exorcist is great, but it's gonna take a backseat here because the makeup in this film Whoever David Cronenberg had, I honestly feel like I should have looked it up, but David Cronenberg, as he's a Canadian director, whoop, whoop, rep in the house, and he, I don't know who he gets, but he always has amazing, amazing uh, special effects and makeup for his films, and honestly, I, that's what got his career started, whether you're watching The Brood or Videodrome or uh, even Scanners or, um, or Naked Lunch even, he has amazing films i feel like there's one other one in there that i just can't quite think of but anyways david cronenberg this film so he's like yeah let's show you this monkey and the monkey is like like inside out and you're like and you're like holy fuck because it looks like a real <laughs> inside out monkey and is traumatic but just watching without okay let me just say it so he figures it out eventually and then he goes into the machine and the fly goes into the machine and he's like yeah everything's good basically gina davis is like just wait till i'm here and he's like ah, go fuck yourself as you know you would if you had a goddamn teleporter in your house he's not wrong for doing it and how would you know a fly's gonna be in there that's honestly one of the biggest ties of the film so if you don't know i'm speaking like a madman now i'm just powering through this i don't know why but it is slightly a remake. There is a 1950s film. Ah, I don't know if it's 53 or 56. Ugh. But it's got David, uh, David, oh my God. It's got um, Vincent Price in there in the original. And it's great, but it's not the same. And Vincent Price is the brother of the scientist, if I remember correctly. And it's basically like the brother of the scientist right from the get-go. His head's a fly. Uh, so that kind of sucks because we don't really see his inner turmoils and we don't see him change. He's just already the fly head with the fly claw. And you're, it is kind of like, holy hell, oh my God, what in the name of science? Kind of one of those movies. But in this movie, when he transforms, 
he's slowly transforming slowly and then eventually his psyche and his mental development becomes more of a fly than than a, than a humans and you're watching him also like learn and think that he has powers like man this thing's making me stronger and he's like having sex like crazy and he he's he's going 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 but you as a viewer are realizing he's taking on the personality traits the character traits the animal um traits of this fly and eventually it comes and it takes its toll and the makeup here watching him I would say like not progress but degress into this like awful looking thing is fantastic you will not see makeup effects like that anymore in film it is a dead art it's slightly coming back but they will never do that sort of stuff again not to that effect it's 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 thing level special effects it's 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 unreal it's unreal i would argue that this film is better than the thing in terms of special effects it is often praised, but not as the highest, and I feel that that's shorthanding the film. Watching him break down and slowly have more of a scaly texture, his hair is coming out, his teeth are coming out, he's getting more fly uh, um, additions to his body. Oh, it's just so haunting, and the story itself is so well written. The characters are amazing. There's so much to actually love about this film that even if you don't like something, you are kind of captured in one way by something else it's almost a weirdly reverse of beauty and the beast where he starts out normal but becomes the beast and i love that i love that kind of spin because having seen many different variations of beauty and the beast not really putting the two together originally that's all i think about now when i watch it and it's just it's great because it feels so fresh it's how remakes should be done where you take the core concept the very core concept and you make something new with it that's what a remake should be like screaming it from a rooftop that's what it should be it is so well done if you love jeff goldblum you're not going to see him in anything better i can tell you that right now it's not going to happen if you like special effects it's top tier if you like science fiction top tier if you like horror there it is this is actually a perfect blend i am a big sci-fi guy you would know this the the, the podcast itself talks about horror and sci-fi multimedia right this is a perfect blending and um yeah it's just great and it doesn't it feel it doesn't run too long it's very 80s if you're into that which is a plus it doesn't make it perfect but it is a nice addition and yeah as i said it is cronenberg's masterwork it it's it's truly timeless and i feel that's why it's never been remade there was a sequel i mean it's not as awful as people say but very forgetful for a reason um and if you haven't seen it, please go check out The Fly. It is a wonderful film. And I'm sorry I just blew through there, but it is so good. And I'll definitely have to do a retrospective on The Fly series as a whole because Show Factory, or Screen Factory, I should say, is releasing it, and I'm very excited. And without any further ado, The Fly is a perfect horror film. Let's move on to our next one. Does he really speak to thee? This wilderness will not consume us. Who's there? You've cursed this family. This is witchcraft. (laughs) She placed a curse on me. Why have you turned against me? I saw it. You're right, of evil. 
Now, this next film takes a bit of the energy a little bit back um, from my last two entries. It is not as gripping and is not as, well, it is gripping, but it's not as like, you know, it's not as hardcore in your face stuff where stuff's constantly unwinding. It is a lot more of a slow burn, which is film talk for boring. But upon multiple rewatches and re I guess reviewings, uh, uh, same thing you get so much from this film. So without beating around the bush here, this is uh, 2015's The Witch. So it's also known as The Witch with two V's instead of a W, and it's also got the subtitle once in a while as The Witch, A New England Folktale. Now, to be perfectly honest, when I saw this film, it had a lot of hype behind it, and it's kind of the same sort of hype that you saw between, uh, behind like Hereditary or, um, I don't know, like maybe even like Get Out. I don't know, Get Out might be a bad choice, but it's like, it is a, it definitely was like the scariest film, but it's only because it was more of a art focused scary film. Uh, this film, and I hate to say it, but when I first saw this film, I was very underwhelmed, very underwhelmed. I did not like it. I was like, what? And I like, you're kind of like when you, something is built up like that, you're like, where are the scares? Like, sure, there was some like haunting atmosphere. Sure, there was like some sort of, um, unexplainable uh, imagery and yeah like it, it ended kind of really cool kind of really cool but it ended kind of like spooky I guess is probably the best word but then it was done you're like what did I just watch like where was the hype but then something happened and this is my favorite thing that happens when you watch a film it burrows into your brain like a little worm and it just gets in deeper and deeper and deeper and then it starts to grow and multiply and to the point where you have not stopped thinking about this film for a week, two weeks. I could not stop thinking about this film. I really couldn't. I thought about everything and the more I thought about it, my thoughts of going underwhelmed and maybe even unenjoyable went from, man, I actually really like this. I really love that. I can't get enough of how they did this and I never thought about this. I love when a movie does that. It'd be better if I didn't like the movie and then I kept thinking about it. But with multiple rewatches of this film, it is wonderful. Now this film, arguably of the four that I will be talking about today, um, my four main picks anyways, is probably the most divisive. Um, it is not for everybody. I know people in my circle of friends and my uh, group of family that do not like this film and think it is boring and in less lame terms, dog shit. Um, and I, you know, can't, you can't shit on people's opinions, but they're absolutely wrong. You know, one of those things. <laughs> But so this film follows a girl. Um, oh, what is her name? It's something odd. It's something different. I do really love this name, but because this film has a bad reputation, uh, I doubt I'll ever have this as a daughter's name. But I think her name, let me just see here in my notes, Thomason, which I like that name. It's so different. It's so odd. Not like odd, like, ooh, like naming your daughter Wednesday. If you ha if you did that, I mean, that's great. But I mean, I wouldn't I wouldn't name my daughter Wednesday because then that means she's going to be gloomy for the rest of her life. Tuesday, though, that's a fun name. Everybody likes Tuesdays. But anyways, so her name is Thomason. And um, and the, the thing right off the hop from this film, it doesn't make it good or bad, but it should be addressed, is they speak in King James English. So just imagine everybody speaking in like almost Shakespearean, like, I don't know, without like overdoing it, like... <laughs> <laughs> doth mother know you weareth her drapes you know like avengers it's kind of what it's like for this the characters do speak like that because it is in 16 1600s i think 1650 1620s somewhere between there might even be 1630s england or not england new england and 
basically this family is shut out from their community, which is a cool scene. I, I wish you got like maybe even one more minute of it because I do enjoy that as a history buff. Um, but so they're shut out of their community because I guess they're taking either their religion too seriously or they're not taking it seriously enough. But thinking about the film now, it's definitely because they're taking it way too seriously. So they are exiled um, from their community in New England. And the dad's like, <laughs> all right, fuck it. Fuck you guys, right? And I'll, I'll, I, can, I can do this shit. So they go and they build a cabin. They start a little bit of a farm. Farm's not growing great crops. Everybody's tired as hell. How could they not be? It's mom and dad and t- three young kids. Or is it four young kids with the, f- the fifth kid? Yeah, so it's it's Thomason, younger brother, younger twin siblings and then a baby and so everybody thinks yeah there's a witch that lives in the woods i guess that was something that lived in the community as a legend and the the kids are like just you know doing kid stuff and then the baby goes missing and that scene right right away is haunting i'm not going to give away too many of the scenes because i do got want you guys to watch these films if you haven't already i am spoiling them but i'm not going to be you know a tyrant and just ruin all of it um so this is the very first scene and this is the scene right away that you're thinking, good Lord, what did I just watch? So they're playing and Thomason's just being a good older sister, baby's on the rock and she's going peekaboo. And then she goes peekaboo. And then she goes to do it. And the baby is straight up gone. And you can see the bushes rustling. And it's not implied that something went through there, but your brain's definitely being like, yeah, something went through there. And that's always cool when that happens. And not babies being kidnapped, but the scenery implying something. (laughs) So, um uh basically they're like yeah so thomason you're an idiot and you're a fuck up and it slowly begins the family turning on her and saying you're a witch and um more and more everything's her fault more and more things are happening um it goes from the twins saying the goat black philip is is their friend and is talking to them and that's like written off and then there's like the kid the younger sibling who goes too far in the woods and does something that he shouldn't and then is sick and is possessed and the mom starts losing her mind so it all kind of plays in together and then the big reveal at the end shows you something completely out of left field really it it plays with you in so many different ways that i i couldn't stop thinking about it that way because when you're watching it the first time it almost feels like linear like why would this be happening? Why would this be happening? None of this makes sense. But then you realize that the film is actually fucking with you and it's playing with you. Like like you you figure out like what you're seeing is actually happening on this front and what you're seeing could be happening on this front and what happened here actually might've happened and what happened here didn't happen. It's like subverting all of your expectations and it's suggesting stuff and it's actually confirming stuff. And once you get to the end, if you think about it, upon a rewatch especially, you're thinking, oh my God, this film is smart as fuck and it's not like smart films instantly mean it's a good film some smart films can be super boring i just mean smart as in so well like architecturally designed it is so well uh such as a concept is perfectly executed and you feel almost like betrayed in a sense like oh fuck you got me like i i you feel like an idiot but in the right way if that makes any sense that like you don't feel like stupid after you watch the film because like the movie's like toying with you. That's insulting. And even as a film major, I hate that shit. I can admire it sometimes, but this film's like, oh fuck, how did I not? How did I not pay attention to that? Let me watch that shit again. And if a movie makes you want to watch it again, like again right away within like the week, that is a perfect movie right there. Right just on that merit alone. If a movie's like, hey, do you want to watch this again because yeah, I made you think about it, and you're like, hell yeah, brother. 
hell yeah, brother. Like then, you know, <laughs> I don't know where that's coming from. Exhausted. Um, yeah, so it's just great. All of the actors are great because again, like I said, they're talking in King James English. That is not easy. That is not the simplest thing to just freestyle, to improv. If you forget a line or you mess up a line, it's very hard to go back on that or to just think on your feet. So everything must have been practiced perfectly. And the set is so bare and empty and yet so full because it's so it's in, bound in nature, but it, yet it feels like an isolated piece. And those pieces in a film are something I like. It is also why I like the thing. I mean, it can be done wrong. I already talked about how I don't like the hateful eight in a past episode, but when something is confined, it allows, especially in horror, for the suspense and the tension to brew. And I find that that helps a lot in this film and it works 100% in its favor. Um, so yeah, if you're into possession films, if you're into demonic films or even witchcraft films or you're a big history guy, I cannot recommend this film enough. It definitely takes at least two viewings to really appreciate it. Um, and this, like I said, is the most divisive film, but... Wouldst thou like to live deliciously? Wouldst thou like to live deliciously? Oh, what is the... I can't remember the rest of it. Something with butter. But God damn it. I was saying that for a goddamn year after I watched that. Wouldst thou like to live deliciously? Because who would not like to live deliciously? And obviously Thomason wanted to live deliciously eventually. And she lived that delicious life. If you know what I'm saying? So without any further ado, let me just clarify here that The Witch is a perfect horror film, and I will fight you tooth and nail if you say otherwise, but also you're entitled to your opinion. Let's move on. Beware of the blob, it creeps and leaps and glides and slides across the floor, right through the door and all around the wall. Watch a blotch, be careful of the blob. Now, just like the last episode, I do have some honorable mentions and God, you know, these two films arguably could have been on a potential third episode if I do one, which I don't know if I will. Who knows? But uh, there's a couple things with these films that have made them not be on the list. And that's why they're definitely on the honorable mentions, because they do need to be watched. They should be admired. They are amazing, well-crafted films. Films that I, um, one of them for sure I slept on, and that's because I heard how scary it was. And that honestly used to be a huge detractor for me because I am one of those guys who likes to watch horror movies with the lights on. That's right, you heard it here first, folks. I don't like being scared. I'm a big, big pansy that way. When I go to the theater, I cover my eyes. But I like the stories that horror movies have. I like how horror movies make me feel afterwards. And I like when a movie haunts me after. That is a good horror movie. Do I like being scared in the moment? No, I goddamn hate it. I'm not going to be a big man and lie. I hate that shit. So the first movie here that's an honorable mention is 2001, The Others. Now, this was the film I was alluding to. I heard that this film was scary as hell. And being a kid in the 2000s, I'm not going to be like a 90s kid, even though I obviously was. Most of my childhood happened in the late 90s, early 2000s. So I grew up with Scary Movie and the Scary Movie franchise. So the, the thing that I always saw was the commercials uh, 
for the others like are you mad i am your daughter and then the big jump scare in the commercial and i was like yeah right like i i didn't like that and so obviously when they show that scene again i think it's in scary movie 2 where it's like are you mad i am your daughter and he pulls up the veil and it's like a really crappy looking michael jackson impersonator which is arguably hilarious you know i'm not going to be one of those people to say that it's it hasn't aged but it was still funny when it happened but that's the impression i had so knowing that scary movie made fun of it meant that it was the scene that was the scary scene and it's it, i'm not gonna lie it fucked me up i just that scene alone sometimes as a kid a commercial is all it needs and uh so i finally watched this film last year and um good lord i could not turn it off i was exhausted exhausted but much like any good movie in any genre if you're starting it it's it is hard sometimes to like to sh to go to sleep or to stop watching it because not only do you need the closure i'm one of those guilty as charged but it's like your body's like oh no no like you are attached like that movie now it's gone out of the screen and it's grabbed your eyes it's grabbed your face it's like you're watching and you're like oh i'm watching like you know what i mean so nicole kidman is in this and it is a um period piece in the sense that i'm pretty sure Oh, God, don't hold me to it. But it's, it's, I think it's World War II, but it could be World War I. Uh, let's go with two, though. No, let's go with one. You know what? Let's go with none of them. It's, it's in one of the World Wars. And they're in this huge estate. It is Nicole Kidman and her two kids, and she just lost her husband, um, who was fighting in the war. And they take this house, and they have um, house, house like um, guests, guess they have like maids and butlers come to the house the one can't talk and um yeah basically odd occurrences keep happening in it happening in the house and nicole kidman is like um okay so i don't know what's going on but the kids need to be in absolute darkness no natural light touching these bad larry's these kids got to stay in the house at all times and in the shade and let's turn a blind eye to all these weird things so right off the get-go you're like why do these kids not need sunlight and why can they not go outside and that's just creepy in itself and the fact that stuff keeps happening all the stuff that does happen is scary there are jump scares but it's completely well written and you are it's another thing i do love in a film and i know i've brought this up especially i think when i was talking about the changeling in the past episode is that when a film takes you along for the ride and you're figuring out everything that's happening with that character and the film kind of maybe takes a left turn or like a curveball to just try and throw like where your perception of where the film's going. I do love that because it's like, oh fuck, like I thought this was probably what was happening, but I'm wrong. So now I don't know. So now you're invested again. When a film keeps re-upping the stakes and making you invest it, I love that. Granted, um, eventually you do figure out kind of what's happening before the twist is revealed. But much like The Sixth Sense, again, in this in the last episode, please, guys, go check out episode one of uh, Perfect Horror if you haven't seen that or haven't listened to it already. It is much like The Sixth Sense that when you know the twist, you are looking for different stuff. So it's a film that keeps on giving in that way as well. So a film that pulls you in to watch it, a, pull, a film that keeps you pulled in, and a film that offers a new experience when you watch it is perfect. The only reason I would say it's not perfect is that it's not an entirely original story. It's very derivative of Turn of the Screw. If you've seen that, then you know what the spoiler is now. Then it's kind of derivative of The Innocence, which again, same story. It's a little different, a little different take, but it's essentially the same. And another big thing is that I've never had 
the desire to rewatch it more than the the once in a, and a half times when I like went to see some of the stuff that I might have missed because of the twist that I saw at the end. Yes, it's one of those movies that has a twist, and because of that, yes, it's it's sat with me, and yes, I think about it from time to time, and yes, I enjoyed the ever living shit out of that film, and I thought it was so smart and inventive, and I hated myself for sleeping on it for so long, but I've never had the desire to watch it again. Yeah, it's not a bad movie. It's really not. I don't mean like it's not desirable to watch again. It's just there's some there's just there was some stuff things about it that I didn't find enjoyable, and that makes it a not perfect film. I know it sounds preachy because some of those films are like I like it because it's great or I like it because it's my favorite. But yeah, I don't know. Christopher Eccleston in it is in it, which is another plus. I do love my Ninth Doctor, but it's just. Ah, who knows if I do make a third episode maybe I'll change my opinion but for right now I think it's going to be an honorable mention the next film that's in an honorable mention and again I know I rambled here for a while this episode is going to be a lot longer and I'm sorry for it is Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde the 1931 version Frederick March in this film kills it kills it I know a lot of you guys probably aren't into older horror and I know you guys might not just even be into black and white horror to begin with but if you're going to watch anything and you're like yeah I like universal monsters but I'm kind of tired of all the universal monsters throw this on because I know I've maybe talked about before but this film often gets confused with the universal monsters movie and it is not it is uh I'm pretty sure it's produced by Paramount the makeup effect is what most people will talk about um, with Frederick March. And it was a secret, apparently a trade secret for like the next like 50 years before finally the, the makeup uh, artist was like, all right, this is how I did it. And it's kind of a camera trick, really, how they do it. But that stood the test of time. And watching the film as a film, there's layers and layers with this character. Frederick March completely um, opens up with these two characters and makes them two different characters. So he's two different people. It's not like one person and a slightly different crazy person. It is two different people that he's playing when he's doing these. And to the point where like Frederick March's Dr. Jekyll is almost like helpless. He is just a man and he is lost and Hyde almost takes fully over at this point. He's abusing women. He's like, he's hurting people around him. He's like, he is just mad, mad with power, mad in general. He's angry, he's violent. And this is like the sort of stuff that was like, if this was in a postcode film, it wouldn't have come out, if you know what I mean. Like he's beating the shit out of this woman and he's basically saying like, I'm gonna like, you know, he's he's just up to no good without getting too deep into it. And just how developed it was. And I'm pretty sure he won the Oscar. I'm pretty sure, which makes so much sense. This is one of the earliest horror movie Oscars he deserved that film because he kills it he kills it just his transformation alone you know how i talked about in the last episode with um david naughton's transformation where he's like i'm burning up or like god you know like he's just like help me or whatever he says like you see all like the the hurt when you're watching frederick march like like just like he's like his neck is straining he's twisting it is very theater but at the same time it's not it's not like it's not like watching Lon Chaney like slowly like transform into the Wolfman. It's him like friggin' just writhing around in pain, writhing around in pain and just throwing himself and yada yada. And everything is just curled up and twisted. And he finally looks in the mirror and he's watching himself turn. And it, it's, it doesn't feel like a 31 film, I'll tell you that. It feels more like a 50s, late 50s film. It is very ahead of its time it is very timeless it is great and the only reason i don't put it on there is because 
the atmosphere is missing stuff, the supporting cast isn't really there. It's basically Frederick March that holds this whole film together, the writing and the makeup, and it's missing a lot of parts, but for those reasons alone, and that must mean something, that's how I feel anyways, if he himself can hold this film up and the writing and the directing, or the writing and the makeup can hold this film, and that's how close to near perfect it is with all those other detractors, I would say it's pretty close. And for that reason, that's why it's an honorable mention. What happened was true. The most bizarre and brutal series of crimes in America. survives what will be left the texas chainsaw massacre after you stop screaming you'll start talking about it in the last film on this perfect horror list chapter two that i find to be perfect is a film that while it is a, a safe choice definitely a safe choice it definitely rides the line between overhyped and almost being like <clears throat> overrated no it rides the line between being overappreciated and overhyped. Um, and I'll get into it for sure. This film is the 1974 classic, this grindhouse masterpiece of a film uh, directed by Toby Hooper. It is the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Wow. What to say about this film that hasn't already been set? Well, obviously we're going to talk about it. The film, just as a whole, the main reason why I find it to be perfect is how it makes me feel. And I don't mean like feel as I've talked about in past films where I'm talking about it makes me like think, it makes me um, like feel emotionally overwhelmed or sad or in touch with the characters. No, I mean how this film makes me feel. Like I feel sticky and grungy and hot and goddamn uncomfortable and nauseous like this film more than anything captures heat it captures like decay and rot and it captures just like not just that in weather and like humidity and um like smogginess because it definitely does like your skin you feel like like you could fucking shower after you watch this film and but also just like it it captures that with just how uncomfortable um, that the people in the film make you feel just as much as the way the film conveys um, the humidity, the weather, just from like imagery of like rotting flesh and knowing that that flesh is actually rotting. Like this film rides that line very perfectly between like, you know, it's a film, but it rides that that line perfectly between like, is this real life or is this fiction? Like, factor fiction here, it blurs the lines really well, and I can only imagine when this film came out that that's why it was so controversial, because while it's not quite cannibal holocaust level, like, pushing the line, if you will, but 
what it does is and it and it does it so well is it is believable it is not far-fetched like Leatherface when he comes out that is just a big boy that is a big boy with a, a mallet that is a big boy with a, a chainsaw or whatever tool he's using and he's like mentally unhinged and he, you can believe it your like northern mind especially has like been trained like i don't want to just say like northern mind but there's like this weird fictitious part of the the south or yeah the south in america where it's just like you don't want to go off the wrong path because of like what hollywood has told us what of urban legend has told us based on like what is kind of actually out there when you see it like and i really i'm painting with a broad stroke here and i really don't want to make people upset but like it's kind of like those ideals like backwater folk who like do things a little differently and it scares most city dwellers and most just suburban people to think that like people could be like like not like that like that but like twisted and deformed and just mentally like not of the same caliber or on the same wavelength that I think an average person kind of factors themselves in I don't know I'm, I feel like like just digging a hole here but it is not like what I was getting to is like it is not a Jason Voorhees it is not a Michael Myers or a Freddy Krueger or a Pinhead or anything like that um it's uh, it's more along the lines actually kind of if you if you see where I'm coming from here as a uh, a, a ghost face because this seems realistic and that is also what ties you in it is like this is a mentally unhinged man who is just torqued and is pumped full of adrenaline and is doing what he thinks is right and he is going to chase you through the woods he will hit you over the head again and again with a mallet until you're dead watching your legs like like flutter and twitch oh my god that's just oh but everything right up into like the hitchhiker like it nothing about it seems unplausible especially when you put yourself back in like the good old days that's how i look at it i know it might not be fair to the film or how you're going to grade it but like being in the 1970s with a bunch of friends, you're kind of like draft dodging and that kind of type of people. You're driving along, somebody's there, they pick you up and you don't think anything of it. Like nobody thinks anything about hitchhiking in the 70s, especially that's what I've come to know. Obviously it wasn't around the 70s, but people don't really do it at all anymore aside from like Uber, but that's a whole other thing. And so once that guy starts like cutting things and like threatening people with a knife, it gets fucky real quick. But it, it's like, yeah, I could totally believe that would happen. And already you are like a little unhinged. Like, yes, when a horror is based in reality, especially I find the older you get, that is the scarier it is. It's not like so much that like a random ghost is keeping you awake at night because like, yeah, a ghost could hypothetically in this world of believing in ghosts could keep you awake at night. But you know what's more realistic? Somebody coming in your car and stabbing you. That is more realistic. That is more frightening. The fact that we already get there and then just when they like stumble upon the Sawyer's like mansion, it's uh or a state, I don't know. It's not really I guess it's kind of a mansion. And they walk in there and the door opens and there's a leather face, hits the guy with the hammer, legs twitching, drags him in, door slams. It's like already you're like, buckle in because yeah, this is the fucking nightmare fest we're about to drive into. And I have watched this film with people that were like, wow, like that fucking felt hot, sticky. That was like twisted. I'm going to be thinking about that for a long time. And that's why I think this film was perfect, as I mentioned. But sometimes people are like, no, I didn't feel hot. I didn't feel sticky. It didn't work for me. And as I said before, people are entitled to their opinions. And it, that's what I mean. This film is always up there with The Exorcist, The Shining, 
I don't know, the first Halloween. It's always up there. People always put this as in a high caliber tier, um, but some people don't agree with it. And I totally see that as being fair. It is not, it doesn't do, especially if now, if you're like a, like a gore porn hound, this doesn't do it for you because this film is also smart. And that's the one thing I like about it. It gets around a lot. Sure, you do see some violence, but when people are like, yeah, the blood and guts in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre was crazy. And like when he puts the hook through her, but you never see it. It leaves it all to your imagination. And that's one thing I do enjoy a smart film that can play with it. It, it. it totally is a Hitchcock vibe in that sense. You never see the meat hook go through them. You never see the chainsaw go through people. You never see it. You don't. The dinner scene is a whole other level, and I really would love for you guys to explore that when you see it, but that is the most uncomfortable. You see her completely anxious, filled with hysteria. She's like unhinged at this point. Our final girl is twisting around and laughing. She is so mentally drained and just abused, and they're playing with her, and they have, it's just, it's just the scenery. Everything about that film hits a note, and it's not like they're light notes. They hit hard every time and they go in just every time they go to 11. Like this is not like any of its counterparts. One thing about this series is that once the films get going, none of them are of the same quality. None of them are really of the same genre. This is one in itself, a tight film. It is a horror film and it doesn't play around with comedy. It doesn't play around with um, schlocky writing or over-the-top gore like this is a well-made well-executed film lightning in a bottle toby hooper arguably could never recapture this again and i can't blame him because when you make something that is as perfect as this it's hard to duplicate and it'll always be second best yeah that's it i i i feel like i wanted to say so much more about this film all of the characters feel like real people none of them feel like super grade a actors leatherface uh, Gunnar Hansen, I'm pretty sure, big brooding guy. He does it so well. The different appearances that he has, all the different um, for all the different appearances, he has a different uh, persona almost for each of the characters, and it's just that kind of little levels, little little levels of acting that adds so much nuance to the film, and you really don't understand how much it, it it gives, like the gravitas of it all, until you're really paying attention to it. And the final girl that. That scene, that and you'll know the scene I'm talking about if you've seen it or if you're about to watch it, when it's at when she that her last scene is arguably one of the most memorable scenes in the movie, um, whether it's between her or it's the scene with uh, Leatherface, it will be a journey, and I cannot recommend it enough for this October for the Halloween season. That is it. That is my last pick for Perfect Horror Chapter Two. 1974's The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And now, without further ado, the long-awaited segments you've been waiting for, our gracious horror guests, well, and movie guests and artists and just very talented people, have been waiting a long time to give you their opinion since August. I'm really sorry, guys. So now, please put your hands together by yourself very weirdly for our guests on their takes. On perfect horror. Enjoy. Hey guys, this is Scott Fossa coming at you, frequent collaborator uh, with Tyler on the Conversation One podcast and co-host of the Kaiju Conversation segments that we have. I'd like to thank Tyler for having me on again. Uh, it's always a great pleasure to come on and talk about horror, sci-fi, 
um, you know, just genre cinema. Uh, so about a month ago, Tyler um, approached me about this idea for what I think is the perfect horror movie. Uh, and man, like I was struggling with this for a while because it's quite, quite the large task to label something as a perfect horror movie. There are many horror films I love dearly, but I would not say they're perfect at all. Like, for example, um, earlier in the year I watched Friday the 13th Part 7, and I mean, those are kind of exploitation-ish like movies, right? We don't love them, but we get some enjoyment out of them, right? The characters, you know, Jason's going around killing people, and that one in particular, you know, he's fighting that girl that has psychic powers. But I would never say that that, that series, any of them really, um, or even the Nightmare on Elm Street movies are are very good or perfect movies. Um, so I had to kind of narrow down my selection in terms of what I thought. Uh, and I did narrow it down to honorable mentions. Um, one that I love, but I wouldn't say is perfect, is Fright Night from 1985. Um, it's the epitome of bringing the classic horror of, like, your Dracula, right? It's like a vampire film, into the 80s, right? It's got this great 80s score. It's so good. The creature effects, you know, that you've got, like, your vampire bats. There's a, a vampire that turns into a werewolf. It's great. And honestly, the characters are all very uh, enjoyable to watch. It's got a lot of homages to the Hammer films um, of Christopher Lee. So it's very enjoyable if you like those those um, classic um, Silver Age Hammer, like Frankenstein and, and Dracula movies. Um, a lot of homage to that. And the creature effects at the end are great. Um, it's that one's more veering on horror comedy though, but we're trying to find out what we would say is the best straight up horror film. And honestly, guys, if I was to choose what would be the best straight up horror film, it has to be William Friedkin's 1973 masterpiece, um, The Exorcist. It's actually adapted from a novel. I've never read the novel by William Peter Blatty, but it is absolutely fantastic. Um, some people say that the first act, it kind of drags on a little bit too much. I completely, I couldn't disagree more. Honestly, the characters, they just draw you in. The performances in this movie are great. Um, Ellen Burstyn plays Mrs. McNeil. She's like a wealthy actress um, living in uh, Washington, D.C. or the surrounding area. And her daughter is, of course, taken over by this 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 demon, this demonic presence. You never actually find out what it is. And the ambiguity of it, that kind of just heightens the the tension and the scares for me, honestly. But uh, Linda Blair obviously plays the daughter, Reagan McNeil, and it's just, it's so chilling how they portray the voice overlaps of the demon um, over Linda Blair. Um, the Exorcist is played by Max von Sydow, who is just absolutely brilliant. Um, even from the first scene, also, another thing I gotta say, the combination of, like, the brilliant acting, the great cinematography in this movie, and, like, the eerie sounds, it just makes for such a, a strong um, movie, really, like, just a eerie film from start to finish. Max von Sydow at the beginning, where he's, like, digging up, I guess it's, like, pottery in Iraq? You know, he's clearly a very connected man um, with the Catholic Church, but he's also doing digs, so it, it makes him seem like he's an expert in terms of understanding the supernatural or the mystic world just beyond um, the veil, if you will. He's there and he does this dig and then he just, at the beginning, there's just that eerie music and just the growling of dogs. And you just see that statue of um, Pazuzu, the demon. And just the wind is howling and it's just him. And there's that hypnotic, um, slowly the whining of the, of the wind sort of turns into just this hypnotic 
terrifying music as he stares at that thing and it just it grabs you right from the beginning and it never really lets go because there's you know there's something wrong with all these characters and there's this whole force lying over um the uh the family so ellen burston does a great performance she goes from everywhere from happy at the beginning with reagan to giving scenes where she's just breaking down in sadness where she shows pure terror the scene where she has to uh, confront Damien Karras, Father Karras, where she has to confront him and just says, like, look, I know for certain that that thing is not my daughter, you know, and she's just, she shows such anger. And then, you know, it's the classic story, too, of, uh, in terms of Father Damien Karras, you know, you see, it's, I think it's kind of become a trope, but this is the first film which really starts to play around with the idea of the priest who has lost his faith. Um, you see that again in, like, films like From Dusk Till Dawn, right? You know, it makes a great character arc. person has to rise above and, like, regain their faith to defeat the evil forces or the demons, things like that. And uh, Jason Miller, as Father Karras, does a great performance, too. He's probably my favorite character in the movie. He really draws you in. You know, his mother's sick. Uh, and then the demon uses that against him later, right? His mother dies. He's sort of losing his faith. He's friends with another priest, um, uh, Father O'Malley, who's played by uh, Joseph Dyer. Or sorry, Father Joseph Dyer actually played by a priest, Father O'Malley. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's quite the amazing film. Um, some standout scenes for me, I would say, are <laughs> there's the the head turning scene, which is always pretty crazy. Just the scenes too, where I saw this very recently. Um, again, rewatching it for this podcast, but um, the scenes where he first confronts the demon, Father um, Father Karras comes in. And he says, like, I am the devil, right? And then the drawer comes out from the bed, and then it's just pushed back in by the demon. And Father Karras just looks at the demon and says, do that again. And then he says, the demon just says, in time. <laughs> it's, like, so unsettling. And then, you know, he's, he speaks with the demon again, and he says, oh, do it now. And he says, the demon just says that's that's far too much of a show of my power and it's just like <laughs> it's so unsettling and that the demon is so confident in its evil ways and the power that it has over this family right and then he records the audio from the demon sort of speaking in tongues and then he listens back to it in that dark room and the the acting oh the actors all give you know great performances in terms of talking but also in just terms of like the shock terror that they have on their face and he's just listening to that recording again, um, in the room. And, uh, you know, he plays it backwards or whatever in that room. It's so unsettling. It's like the demon is saying, like, I am no one. And there's this, like, these growls. And it's, it's like, you know, let her die. I am no one. And it's, oh, it's so unsettling. I saw it again recently. And uh, I usually watch this once a year around Halloween. But I watched it again for the, for the podcast. And it's, Whew, yeah, it is really unsettling. Um, cinematography is actually done by Owen Reutzman and Billy Williams. Um, give credit where credit's due. I think that the cinematography in this movie is great. You know, the scene of Father Marin first arriving, the smoke and the shadows by the house, and then just that light of him coming out of the taxi, and he's, you know, that the final battle is going to come. That's a great shot, too. Um, uh, and then just seeing just seeing the eyes of the demon, you know, those green sort of those dark green, like, how do I describe it? Very um, like sullen yellowish green uh, eyes of the demon just zooms in on those. 
as Father uh, Marin comes up to the house. It's just great, a lot of the shots in this movie. Um, another standout scene for me has got to be the famous spider walk scene, which was actually taken out of the movie until... Oh, by the way, I'm talking about the supposed version you've never seen before, which is frequently available now. It's available on DVD. That's the copy I have. So they've put this lost spider walk scene back into the film, um, which they removed originally because... Apparently, William Friedkin thought that it occurs too early in the movie. Um, but they brought it back in for this version, and it's just so unsettling. You have that whole scene about how how um, Mrs. McNeil's actor friend was thrown out the window and died, right? And they don't know what happened, and everyone's like upset about it. There's just this unsettling noise in the house. Uh, she came in, and the police were all there. And she knows that her daughter's been not feeling well. This is sort of in the middle of the movie. And then there's just this unsettling, like, like blood-curdling noise. And then, like, her daughter just, like, walks down the stairs backwards, like, on her arms and legs. It's so unsettling. And then her just, <laughs> her her mouth opens. And it's like, yeah, there's just blood coming out. And it's like, then it just, her mother just looks horrified, right? Ellen Burstyn, just great acting, just looks horrified. And then it just cuts to black. And I was watching with my sister, and we were both like, oh my god, this is this is so unsettling. You know, even with when scenes aren't like really scary, you just there's just this eerie quality over the entire film. So uh it's a very good movie. Um it hooks you right from the beginning, right till the end. Some people say it's slow at the beginning, but I couldn't disagree more. Um great performances, great music. Apparently that it actually won best music composition at the uh but that's probably not what the category is actually called, but I think it's best, you know, something like that um, at the uh, Academy Awards, like for best music composition. And it was, it won best writing, but it was also nominated for, for best picture, right? So that just tells you something there. Uh, I was reading up to that apparently Warner Brothers, like, wasn't very confident with this movie. They didn't think it was going to, like, make much money. I guess because exploitation horror films were big back then, they just didn't think there was a big audience for it, but it came out in select theaters apparently like only like 40 in the states and then it was like people were going to see it people were shocked like leaving the theater but they were still like so entertained and so gripped by this movie that apparently warner brothers was like oh man we need to do a wide release and they they immediately put it in like 200 theaters which apparently back in 73 was just unheard of yeah just amazing um oh and apparently friedkin was like hand-picked by william peter blatty the the writer producer and like the writer of the original book, um, because he wanted the same energy as William Friedkin's uh, previous film from a few years ago, um, China, The China Connection. Yeah, it's it's very good. Um, I, if you haven't seen The Exorcist and you're a horror fan, like, what are you doing? Get off your ass. Well, first of all, wait till sun goes down. Grab some caramel corn and your cherry coke. Sit there with your loved ones, curl up there, and put on this amazing movie, because if you love horror, you won't be uh, disappointed. It's it's very good. I could keep heaping the praises on it. <laughs> but that's all from me. That's my pick. Um, once again, thanks so much, Tyler, for having me on again. And I can't wait to hear you guys uh, hear you guys be on here again to uh, discuss with you guys, you know, the horror and sci-fi uh, that I love. Thanks so much for listening to me holler away here. And uh, stay scared, guys. Scott out. We were lucky enough to have another talented artist write in for this episode. Matt Cunningham, or as he's known on Instagram, Moon Patrol. His collage technique pieces include themes inspired by and from horror movies, folklore, detective pulps, and, amongst other things, 
skeletons leading lives independent of their owners. Matt writes in, Hi, my name is Matt Cunningham, and I run the Moon Patrol account on Instagram. Two of my favorite horror films are Shaun of the Dead and An American Werewolf in London. I think horror and comedy are a perfect complement to each other. Jump scares and creepiness are emotions that operate on incongruity, on something surprising that happens but that shouldn't happen. Irony and punchlines in jokes operate on a very similar incongruity. The best punchlines are unexpected and ironic humor operates on the incongruity of the perfect opposite of what should happen happening. In this way, punchlines and jump scares are related. They're two sides of the same coin in a way. Irony and creepiness the same. Because humor and horror are so closely related, horror and comedies are a perfect hybrid. The humor leavens the horror, leavens, not lessens, and the promise of horror makes the humorous moments fraught. American Werewolf was the first modern coupling of these two things that was on purpose and that was effective. Effective is the operative word here. There were movies like Laurel and Hardy versus the Wolfman, but these were farces and not horror. American Werewolf had genuinely funny moments, but was also genuinely scary. Shaun of the Dead was similar, but I feel it was more comedy than horror, while it is a worship homage to zombie horror. Because it takes its source material and characters seriously, the film works. Again, the creators knew that horror and comedy are generated from the same zone in our brains, and they leaned into that. All the best, Matt. Hey, this is Aaron from Horrible Horror Podcast, the podcast where we watch the worst and the worst in horror movies, movies so bad they're scary, doing a fun little thing for a conversation for one podcast. There's two of us here. But basically, we were approached and asked, what makes a perfect horror movie? What? Because we don't watch perfect horror movies. We watch, again, the worst of the worst, so you know what time it is. So we're here, and we again, we were approached. We are Horrible Horror Podcast, the podcast to watch the worst of the worst in horror movies. Movies so bad, they're scary. I am your host, Aaron <laughs> Southworth, with my co-host, Marshall Hampton. Hey, whoa, 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 wait a minute here. Uh, that's, it's kind of backwards, but all right. I know. I usually take the reins. Yeah. You, you usually take I, the reins. I noticed how you also kind of left me out of the intro. You're like, I'm Aaron. I'm here for this. It's just like, wait, I'm here too, dude. You are. <laughs> kind of left me out. But I do handle the Instagram, and I was oh. <laughs> yes, that's true. You do handle our Instagram. I do, page. I do. And we were approached by a conversation for one podcast, and they said, "Hey, uh, we're, uh, I guess it's just one. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking about doing a podcast for horror movies." And in quote said, "What makes quote unquote perfect horror?" Huh. That's a good question. Why? Why would they approach us? Because we don't know. <laughs> that is not our. 
Why? Why would he approach us? Yeah, it's kind of in the name, dude. Yeah, it's uh, we watched the worst of the worst in horror movies. Movies so bad they're scary. But I, I want, I, I did correspond quite a bit, and I, I feel bad because I didn't catch his name. Um, but basically, a conversation for one host. I gotta tell you, we have certain movies that we find so amazing and so perfect in the best horrible ways. I think it's a good idea just kind of talk a little bit about. What makes a good horrible horror movie, or maybe I guess as a, a conversation for what podcast would say, the quote unquote perfect horrible horror movie? Yeah, and it's the thing about that is it's I don't know if there is a criteria because sometimes it's just it's almost organic. Mm-hmm. Like the the ones that really stand out that are so bad that but they 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 go full circle like they start they just go so bad and they come back around to being good or they transcend being so bad and come back to being good. It's ones like I said, it's, it happens just, it's like not intentional. You there's know, like, a, there's something in there. There's, that's an, a, there's an X factor. Yeah. That you can't like, again, it's like trying to capture lightning in a bottle. You just, you can't do it. It just kind of is, it just kind of happens. And, and when you people who try to do it, you can tell they're trying to do it. And most of the time it fails miserably and does not reach the so bad. It's good. It just goes to the, pure shit mode yeah uh pure pure garbage like t- like you mentioned it earlier there's a movie called terror at blood fart lake yes 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 gives zero fucks zero absolutely zero doesn't care if you watch it doesn't care if you like it doesn't care if you are unapologetic gonna... yes doesn't 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 give a damn what you think and holy god is it one of the most fun things to watch if yeah if you can get past the first five ten minutes of it and start realizing what they're doing, it's great. Yeah, it's. Oh, I mean, but like I said, most. But I'd say about ninety percent of people who try to watch the movie probably turn it off after the first five or ten minutes. And I like, understand. Like, nope, I ain't. Well, this is terrible. I understand. And, and you know what? The first time I watched it, I was one of those people. Like, this is garbage. Like, if I wasn't watching this for the show, I'd probably turn this off myself. But I'm like, and then I watched it a second time, and then I had to watch it a third time. And by, I'm like, oh my god, I'm picking up on this. This is amazing it's a brilliant it's film brilliant. it's so good and but it's ultra low budget so shoestring budget like it's like guys on camcorders in their backyard but it's 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 something happens so they manage to catch that lightning in the bottle yeah. part of it has to do with the writing is crazy very it, well written it's so well it's, hilarious at least for you know what it kind of i didn't think of that sign but it kind of reminds me of like uh like i don't know if you follow me on this but it kind of reminds me of like a like a guy richie horror movie like the Ryan was so like weird and out there and kind of like had that that flow to it. it was like, but it, but it was a horror movie ass. It was like just not British at all. But I mean, it was I don't know. Maybe that's not a great example. I, I, was, I get what you're saying, but I feel like it's Guy Ritchie that's been locked in his own like sh- like wood shack with with nothing but. Jack Daniels and like snowballs from Hostess. Like that's always had to eat for like. 10 days and yeah. he just comes out like goofy <laughs> drunk and w- just totally weird yeah with a guy richie flair yeah yeah it's kind of like that and it's i mean the, the special effects are terrible i mean the acting is incredibly over but it's intentionally over the top so but weird. they committed to it and they, they committed to the stupidness of it that it makes it almost it makes it like passable and enjoyable to watch so there's something like blood fart lake yeah terror blood fart lake last the last slumber party Again, another horrible movie, 
But again, that's when I, I can't tell if they were trying to be serious, which I think they were, but they were just so bad at it that it came around to being obviously terrible and almost comically bad without intentionally being like trying to be comically bad. Mm-hmm. And it, that, that movie is now taking like its place in the, 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 the pantheon of bad horror movies. Yeah, it's got a it's, it's got a terrible. special track. I mean, Rift Tracks did something. Like yes, that. Yeah, yeah, Rift Tracks did it. The Mystery mm-hmm. Science Theater three thousand guys. Um, it, it was that bad that it was fun and yeah. funny. But it, God damn, was it a bad movie? But it's terrible. But yeah, so you can't like watching that as like an actual horror movie is rough. Like I don't, you can't really do it. And again, for a conversation for one podcast. Again, the quote-unquote perfect horror movie is tough because, again, I like to watch horror movies with my friends. And we get around, we drink some beers, we eat some food. We are, like, all kind of goof on a horror movie. If I actually want to sit down and watch a psychological scare and be by myself, like, I, I like that, too. It depends on the mood what is quote-unquote perfect. Right. Yeah, but again... We're going to try and pick one that's so bad it was good. And I'm going to, I have one okay, here. Okay, go ahead. So I'm going to pick one so bad it's good that comes to mind right off the bat is a muck train. Uh, it's also referred to as Beyond the Door 3. You always know you're in for a good movie when it's got multiple titles and they can't pick a title for the thing. That's always a good sign. And a muck train was a goddamn <laughs> ride. Holy shit. This film started off and just. T- <laughs> Started off with a convolution of physics and just kept on going. I, it it defied the laws of physics at the first kill, and then I was <laughs> just kept going. The special effects were decent, and they had no regard for their actors or actresses. No regard for human safety in that movie whatsoever. So many stunts that were done where they're like, "Oh my god!" It's like that person just fell off and was never seen again. Yeah. Like, did he actually die? Did the did the actor die? They're just. Because it was filmed in Serbia. Serbia. Fine. Yeah. Holy crap. And that's a great movie. That's a, it's a so bad it's good. It is such a bad movie, but good gravy. Watch it with your friends. Pop in. Pop some popcorn. It's on YouTube right now. You can is watch it on it. YouTube now? You can watch it for free. Fuck. I always get screwed. I always have to buy these things. And then later I find, oh, I could watch it for free here. Did you know Ice Cream Man is also on YouTube right now? No, has been free on YouTube and again in picture perfect quality. Oh, Jesus, that's why I never check YouTube. Because every time I when I did check YouTube, I know we're going to rant here, but every time I went through it, it was so grainy and it's like I can't even see it. So I never, I just never, you know, I never have high hopes for anything on YouTube. But a muck train, a muck don't give a fuck. Muck do not give a fuck. A muck train is one of those perfect examples of so bad it's good. Um, now see, I like how you said like movies that. You want to watch with your friends and then watch you want by yourself. Because mm-hmm. like, I think there's two different. There are. There are. Yeah. There are. I mean, if you could, like, for instance, like, once you, like, want to watch with your friends, it's just a fun, good time. It's not so bad. It's good or scary. But, it's, like, The Mutilator is a classic. That's a right. fun, It's got amazing kills. It's got bad acting. It, you can laugh at it, but still, still kind of take it seriously enough that's, that it's, like, uh, you know, that's a, that's a pretty solid, fun, bad horror movie. Funny thing about that movie, also two titles. Yes, it was originally called Fall, Fall, Fall Break. Break. <laughs> a great song, by the way. Great music <laughs> in that one. Another great one that, that tr- was so bad, transcended to being crazy funny. But even though it's a terrible, terribly made movie, was Swamp Ape. That one is just <laughs> that movie. <laughs> holy shit, Swamp Ape! If you ever see it, 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 it's again, it's 
incredibly low budget. It's about a fucking basically a Bigfoot in the Everglades, and it's just a, a dude in like a really bad mascot costume with like a garbage bag taped to his chest it's running so around. It's so bad. It's so bad. But at the same time, you, when you're watching, you're laughing so hard at its obscurity and just it's just it's just ridiculousness that again it leaves a it leaves an impact on you after you've done watching it. So again, like just for like for us here at the show, that's another one we still reference and talk about to this day. And that was two years ago. I yeah, think, three, yeah. We did Swamp I Eight. would guess it'd be about two years. Uh, ago, yeah. But um, but then again, talking about the perfect bad horror movie. There's so much to it. Uh, I just, I don't know. Well, perhaps that's exactly what what the point is then. There's no such thing as the perfect horror movie. And it's, yeah, it's also very, like art is subjective. Like to us, another thing, but so is that a perfect bad movie? Because it, because it leaves, the, the impression it leaves with you, does that make it, you know, take that into the equation too. Right. The impression it makes, not so much the film itself, but how it makes you feel and does it stick with you years, weeks, days after you've seen it. So there's another you know, monkey wrench in, in the equation of what defines a perfect horror movie. Right. Good or bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's, we're not talking about good ones because we don't really do good horror movies on this show. Um, but that's right. Like, if you really want to, um, one we haven't done, like, what would you think is the, to you, what's the best or most perfect horror movie you've seen regardless of being on our show or not? Hmm. Okay. So like a true good horror movie. Yeah. I, I'm going to have to say, Probably Halloween, the first Halloween movie. Is, That's exactly where I was gonna go too. Like to yeah. me, to me, Halloween is is probably the best, the, the closest most per- thing you could say is a I perfect think, horror movie. I I one hundred percent think. I think to me that is the most perfect horror movie. Some people might say Exorcism, but I was never really big into that. I didn't think that was all that scary. Halloween is also the one that redefined the genre. Granted, uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre came out beforehand with the slasher thing, but Halloween what is what meets redefined horror movies and gave birth to the slasher genre and is to me the most perfect horror And I'm movie. glad you brought up uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. But the te- thing about Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which was a great film also, but they went to the horror. They went to the the maniac's home where the, they were living at the home. They went onto their turf. Yeah. Whereas in Halloween, the horror came to you. Grand, the horror yes. came to your neighborhood, your subdivision. You want to talk about a picturesque Wonderful Haddonfield, Illinois. That's not yeah, because it it comes to the quiet town where horror isn't supposed to happen. Correct. And Texas Chase America is on the middle of nowhere, you know, Texas, you know, sure. away from society. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and and it's 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 attacking your neighbor. You're you know you see the house that Laurie Strode's babysitting at, and you see her running next door, knocking on doors, and people are like, oh, just calm down, you know, stop pranking me on Halloween. It's those kind of moments that just go. Ugh. It's 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 not. Granted, the iconic images of Michael Myers are, you know, always going to be in the mind's eye of horror fans. But it's those weird, subtle things. The very, very end, when Michael is shot and killed, or quote-unquote killed and falls off. And then Dr. Loomis comes and looks back and he's gone. And then it's that long scene of him breathing on the audio in the mask. And they they show the church, or the, the school. The house, you know, different areas in Haddonfield where he's, is he, can he be in the school? Can he be at this house? Well, can he school, be in this house? Yeah, I know what you're talking about. You know what I'm talking about. I'm the sorry, I haven't room. seen this many times as you It's like have, the living room, the kitchen, the, right. the, the yard, the house across the street. Yeah, it's he all these. easily yeah. be around any of those corners at yeah. any time, and that's the part that And Halloween is fear. the movie that, like, like, everything, like, you see in all modern, like, slasher movies and horror, it basically 
ripped, have gotten it from Halloween. That's the one that gave us all the cliches, all the tropes. It's the one, the grandfather, really, of modern-day slasher absolutely, horror. Absolutely, absolutely. So to me, that is the, probably the most perfect horror movie. And so I think that's what I'm going to come down to. What makes a perfect bad horror movie is not so much the quality of the movie, the quality of the actors, the script, the blood, but it's the, enjoy, the, the enjoyment you get while watching it. Does it make you laugh? Does it make you? Does it entertain you? And does it leave you with some kind of post-watching like feelings? Does it leave something, something about the movie stick with you at the end to make you think, yes, that was a terrible movie, but God, I enjoyed it so much, and it was silly. In all of its badness, I still liked it. Looking but for you said it. You said it so well. You just said it so well. What kind of imp- the perfect quote unquote the perfect horror movie? What kind of impression does it make on you? Because everybody, a lot of people, you know, everybody says how a lot of people say Halloween's one of the best. Exorcist is one of the best. Mm-hmm. People even say Jaws, Alien. They all those are all gonna be classified as some of the best horror movies of all time. And and rightfully, and rightfully so. so. Yeah. So there, I don't think there's a whole lot of room for you know that's like nitpicking. Okay, which one's one? Which one's two? Which, where right. did you put three? But there, it's you know kind of universally accepted. These are the cream of the crop, the best ones. But when it comes to the best of the worst, that's when it's going to become more personal and a lot more room to debate. And I think that's where you have to look at what sticks with you. What does which ones leave you with something, leaving you feel something way after the time you get done watching it? Like does it stick with you months and years down the line? That is, what I think, what answers their question is what makes the best bad horror movies. Perfect. I couldn't have said it better myself. That's a very great way of putting it. So I think... Uh, I, I think, think that's that then. I think we kind of said everything we need to say. And we've, I, ra- we've gone way longer than we were supposed to for this, yeah. but that's what happens when you get two people ranting and talking. So, uh, so Tyler... Tyler, so, yeah, edit Tyler. this down if you want or use it in its entirety, whatever. Hope this helps you guys and your yeah. listeners. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, so this is listening uh, to Tyler's... Uh, uh, conversation for one. Thank you. I was going to... Conversations for one. And if you feel like it, you want to turn it over and check out us, check us out at Horrible Horror Podcast. We're on all the main listening platforms. You can find us on our website, uh, Instagram, Twitter. Follow us, check us out too. If you get, mm-hmm. you know, want to hear more of our ridiculous rants on really bad horror movies, love yeah, to have you. This is actually the most tame we've been in a long this time. This is the most tame and refined we've been for a long time because we're not really sure what kind of content Tyler wants on his uh, content face. So, yeah. yeah. Um, all right, guys. Uh, but yeah, I think that. I think, I think you, so. I think, as we normally do, I think we did a pretty good job of uh, addressing the, the quote unquote perfect questions. questions. I, I, as yeah. best we can, anyway. Yeah, as best as we I can. I mean, we're not. We're no. We're no. We're not like film critic snobs or intellectuals or, or you know the deep dives. We're <laughs> Absolutely just two, not. Two, we're just two guys who drink beer from St. Louis who just watch shitty horror movies. And we love it. And we love it. So, like we always do, guys. We'll say we'll end this with watch more horror movies. And remember to always keep it tight. Hi, this is Chris, host of The Full Price, a podcast dedicated to the life and career of the legendary Vincent Price. Price preferred the human monster to the monster monster. He said, perhaps I can put it down to my belief that what man does to himself or has done to him by other men is the most terrifying thing in the world. There may be more in heaven and earth than is dreamt in our philosophies, but my nightmares are what can happen to me if my dreams are stifled, if my realities are thwarted, if my fellow man turns out to be inhuman after all. I tend to agree, and that is why my favorite Price horror film is The House on Haunted Hill from 1959. The most important relationship in the film is between two human monsters, Price and his wife. The marriage is fractured beyond repair and they absolutely despise each other. Price had recently divorced his first wife, Edith, before making the film, and the frustration and disappointment of that marriage seemed to have supercharged his performance here. 
he throws acid barbs with his co-star, Carol Omart, who herself had just ended her second marriage a couple of years before filming. The on-screen interaction between the two is a highlight of the film and provides a motivation for the mayhem to come of the type rarely bothered with in modern horror. The film also hits all the best 50s horror tricks, stop-motion animation, a 3D release, a mix of haunted house sounds lifted from a 10-year-old's novelty 45 record, and a delightfully mod soundtrack by Frank Duvall that if my editing skills are any good is playing over this little bit right here. One particular novelty at play here was the William Castle Emergo concept, where a real-life skeleton was swung from wires in the theater when the skeleton attacked on screen in the film. I have no idea how well it was received in person, but I appreciate the effort. Occasionally you can find theaters that will attempt to recreate this in modern day, but it's rare. And finally, my favorite thing about this film is how it's a film about people making horror in order to scare each other to death. Sort of a fourth wall busting nod to the audience, right? In the film, Price's wife is trying to drive everyone in the house mad with cheap scare tactics so that someone will kill Vincent in their hysteria. And she, in a twist ending, is scared to death. Seeing a skeleton walking menacingly toward her, she falls backwards, screaming into a vat of acid, only to have it revealed that it was Price himself working an elaborate skeleton puppet. And as the audience laughs along with Price, they realize for the first time, oh yeah, all that supernatural stuff we've been seeing was just a ruse. But then of course it is a ruse, it's just a movie. And that's how it should be to me. Terrible people doing terrible things to each other, with a pinch of shenanigans, scares and laughs, tension and release. And you have something higher level to think about at the end. But only if you want to. All the makings of a good horror film. Thanks for listening. My name is Chris. Be sure to find me on Twitter and Instagram, at FullPricePod, or find The Full Price on your favorite podcatcher. This is Cooper Beckett, author of Osgood is Gone and Osgood Riddance. When I think of perfect horror, there's really only one film that comes to mind, and that's Silence of the Lambs. It is, in many ways, a perfect film from beginning to end. It has an incredible monster in the guise of Hannibal Lecter, and makes you feel the horror of him, even though he's only on screen for something like 15 minutes in the entire movie. But a lot of people don't consider Silence of the Lambs horror. They want to lump it into the uh, thriller category or suspense. But it is a slasher film through and through. And Buffalo Bill is terrifying. If I had to go beyond that, I would go with Interview with the Vampire. Now, this is a another unpopular one that is also often not considered pure horror. But Interview with the Vampire is one of the only films where Tom Cruise ever doesn't act like Tom Cruise. It's a lyrical, operatic, beautiful piece of cinema that is truly scary and truly funny at the same time. But again, I think your audience may chide me for considering this perfect horror. So I'll go with the crowd pleaser. Halloween is perfect horror.
Halloween is the quintessential slasher film. It sets up almost every bit of the genre, even as it cribs from earlier films like Black Christmas, which was very close to perfect horror, but didn't make it. You combine John Carpenter's score with Donald Pleasance's wild, over-the-top Ahab role and Jamie Lee Curtis's wonderful heroine, and you have pure horror. Pure, glorious, perfect horror. These three films are ones that I can watch any time and have owned in many, many versions over the years. I love them all, and they are all within my top ten films of all time. The one that nearly made the cut, and perhaps the scariest of all of them, is The Exorcist. This is balls-to-the-wall terrifying. And amusingly, when I saw it with audiences for the re-release way back at its anniversary, the version you never seen, the audience didn't know what to make of it. They were laughing and giggling along. But when Reagan was stabbing herself with the crucifix, and then when she slapped her mother and said, the sow is mine, the audience went silent because they were hit with what pure horror looks like. The Exorcist is also perfect. If you'd like to check out my books, you can check them out at spectralinspector.com. Hey there, I'm Theo Radomsky from Montreal, Canada, a weirdo artist and film nut. You can find a bunch of my stuff under Flanalog on Instagram or hastilyputtogether.com. I'm currently collecting my weirdo art into little books about sketchy anxiety-filled monsters over at thegarbagefire.club, an imprint I co-run with my pal Go Bunny. But you're not here to listen to me plug my shit. You're here because, like me, you love horror films. I was asked to pick a perfect horror film. People regularly ask me for my favorite films, and I can never narrow it down. Do I go for the impact of seeing Romero's Night of the Living Dead for the first time? Or how Freddy Krueger was permanently etched into my brain long before I even saw any of his films? There's too many to narrow down to perfect. And I hope I get asked again to do a follow-up piece, but for now I've kept it to one. One perfect horror film that has had a significant impact on me and horror in general. An impact that continues to this day. Intense spoilers to follow, because if you haven't seen this film, you need to stop what you're doing now and watch it. 1974, Toby Hooper's genre-defining classic, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I remember hearing the opening narration and getting chills. It always had this ominous sense of dread to it. They said the following really happened. The box said it was true. And no, I hadn't watched it till a good, good while later. But the stark Betamax box art haunted me for a good while. With that menacing caption, who will survive and what will be left of them? It had to be a messed up barrel of what the fuck, right? Yes, this film wasn't entirely based on real events. It was a clever ploy by the filmmakers, a direct response to the public mistrust of the early 70s. But it had to have some truth, right? Sure, this film might not have gone exactly as Ed Gein carried his mommy-issue-filled cannibal corpse wearing spree, but I didn't even know who Ed was at the time. All I knew was this film had a chainsaw massacre, and it took place in Texas, and that was scary enough for me. Seeing this film on a grainy, warped Betamax tape might have added to the experience of watching something that looked like I shouldn't be watching it. Hearing that opening crawl and then being subjected to hearing those creepy-as-hell flashbulb sounds and listening to those ghoulish newscasts of grave robbery and corpse dismemberment and then seeing the full-on rotting corpse propped up in the baking southern sun. 
Yeah, this was going to be a trip. Speaking of trips, a bunch of annoying kids in a van picking up a creepy hitchhiker. What could go wrong? Oh, and the running out of gas. If that's all this film was, that would have sufficed. But this film constantly amps up your expectations. Sure, drunk townsfolk giving nefarious warnings may have foreshadowed it. Yeah, the annoying as fuck Franklin giving gory details of what goes on in a slaughterhouse may have set things up. But you have no idea what you're in for. The moment that nutty hitchhiker gleefully carved up his own hand, I knew this wasn't like any other horror film I'd ever seen. The van, full of disgusted and awkward looks as he just chuckled like a lunatic, was the greatest thing I'd ever seen. Disturbing as fuck. This wasn't Frankenstein or Dracula. This was a different kind of monster. A more tangible terror of that deranged psycho lurking nearby. And things were just starting. The film wastes no time the moment the annoying kids wind up at the Sawyer house. Kirk literally stumbles into Leatherface and gets walloped right on the head. And just flops like a fish, convulsing. And then gets walloped again. No time wasted just raw brute strength and the sound of Leatherface squealing like a pig. We don't even see the full wonder of Leatherface for very long. We just see enough to know this is not someone to fuck with. All bets are off. A giant beast of a man wearing a mask sewn together from human flesh with a bright yellow apron and a slick tie. He may be a destructive half-wit, but he knew how to dress. Or who can forget Pam when she falls into that bone room? The viewer is immediately assaulted with brooding, droning sounds as a caged chicken clucks in the background, a horrific nightmare fuel montage of leftover bits of the dead, a disgusting array of feathers and every kind of bone imaginable, livestock and human remains mixed together like there wasn't a difference. Because to the residents of this house there is no difference. It's all meat for the slaughter, human and animals alike. Bones thrown all over the place, some arranged neatly, some into furniture. Most are just a hot mess. And Pam, like the viewer, is in utter shock and horror. She tries to flee, probably like some moviegoers did in 74. And just like that, Leatherface grabs her back into the house, kicking and screaming, and throws her on a meat hook. Much like Leatherface, this film takes a hold of you and won't let you go. As each teen gets fucked over, you really have less and less of an idea of what the hell is going on and how they'll triumph. And just like that, out comes the titular chainsaw as Leatherface has his way with Kirk, prepping more meat for the fam. Fucking brutal. The sheer amount of brutal what the fuckery just grows and grows, but once the remaining kids are down to one, the chainsaw roars really start. Perhaps one of horror's most intense final 30 minutes of film begin with Sally being chased by Leatherface, that chainsaw buzzing, desperately running and crying out in a dark forest, looking for help, looking for anyone, going to a house but only being confronted with unhelpful taxidermied folk. Leatherface sawing through a door, Sally frantically jumping and breaking through a window when he gets close, and then running through the woods again, all while the deafening sound of the gas-guzzling saw battles with her screams of terror. Saw and screams, a cacophony of noise, each fighting for dominance. And then is that moment that she finds help and comfort from the friendly barbecue cook, only to have it bashed away with a broom. There is no hope. He's part of the family, and he's bringing her home. You get punched in the gut as her muffled pleas of help get drowned out by the cook's inconsequential chit-chat. How is any of this going on? It's so matter-of-factly. He's in a house of death, but he's complaining about a damaged door and yelling at Leatherface like it's right out of an I Love Lucy sitcom. And he still has time to reassure Sally that all will be right because dinner will be ready soon. Southern hospitality at its finest. And then we see sickening grandpa 
It's feeding time, and he suckles on Sally's newly bloodied fingers until she passes out. What the hell are we watching, and why can't we stop? When Sally finally comes to and meets the clusterfuck of a family proper, holy shit, tied up to a chair near a dining room surrounded by lunatics and more corpse furnishing, like some nightmarish Ikea, cue more nonstop wailing, Leatherface looking his best with a pretty new flesh mask on, the hitchhiker and the cook arguing like every other family get-together. I just can't take no pleasure in killing. There's just some things you gotta do. Don't mean you have to like it. It's absolute madness, like a weird, surreal family melodrama with a lot more uncomfortable crying in the background, the extreme close-ups of Sally's eyes, the mocking, deranged laughter from everyone at the table. More screaming. It's a psychotic acid trip that's simultaneously sobering. The frail mess of Grandpa practically corpse himself, getting ready for the kill, struggling to hold the hammer, dropping it every few seconds as every cry gets louder and louder. That manic, unrelenting shrieking. The Sawyer family cheering him on like some kid at a piñata, or like an elder at a birthday struggling to cut the cake. Yet Sally manages to get free, and the chase resumes, in broad daylight. Before you know it, the hitchhiker meets a brutal end at the wheels of a semi-truck and gets mangled in the process and the streaming continues right up until it turns into triumphant yet hysterical laughter. Sally clutching in the back of a speeding pickup truck, cackling with both elation and madness, all while Leatherface is seen spinning his chainsaw in the sun, frustrated at the one who got away, spinning and being crazy as fuck like a child throwing a tantrum. How fucking perfect is that moment? It captures everything you've seen in a nutshell, pure and utter auditory and visual insanity. The final reel of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is Marilyn Burns screeching her heart out in pure terror. Again, my first thoughts were, should I be watching this? How real is this? Years later, I read about the hellish shoots, the smell of actual bones on set, the on-screen accidents, actual bloody hands, and how a lot of those screams were pretty much authentic cries of agony. And that all really comes across on film. One cannot recreate the magic of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre without recreating the hell that it was filming it. Especially that end, because that's one perfectly orchestrated extended escape scene. You want Sally to get the upper hand. She's the last one, the final girl. And when she's finally safe in the truck, maniacally laughing her head off, it's pure madness. She made it, but did she? Can she truly be free of the terror she just lived? And they're still out there, waving their saws. A true testament to how successful this works as film is the fact that, despite all these horrific descriptions, you don't really see what you think you see. Countless people thought they saw a lot more than they did. Even fans to this day feel they're seeing a lot more than what they see. This film, while horrific, while shocking, while engagingly brutal, is not a gory mess. But holy fuck do you ever swear it was. The raw performances and clever edits really trick you into seeing the unrelenting bloodbath that you never truly see. Especially in an age before tape or streaming. Many people walked away thinking they watched a slaughter of epic proportions. I myself have watched this many times, and even today upon rewatching it, for this podcast... It was significantly less gory than I remembered, but that is the power of the mind and the power of the saw. Every couple years I've seen this film on various upgraded formats, seeing more and more details I'd previously missed, from worn beta tape to scratch DVD to eventually seeing a theatrical projection of that pristine, immaculate 4K transfer with gorgeous colors restored and director Toby Hooper in attendance. And it was then and there that I finally realized this film was a beautifully shot art film. The close-up shots of Sally's bright, fearful, and tearful eyes gobsmacked me. It's one of the most beautiful and heart-wrenching looking shots I've ever seen on film. And it was here, 
in the long controversial great uncle of the slasher genre. A dark satire about the meat industry featuring a bunch of redneck cannibals that had a penchant for wearing faces, playing with power tools, and hanging people on meat hooks. It just also happened to have some of the most beautiful, awe-inspiring cinematography of the 70s. Just because your subject matter is harsh and unforgiving doesn't mean it can't look good. And Texas Chainsaw Massacre does all that and more. Those warm orange shots of the sun, the cold blue menacing moons, it's a wonderful shot grainy bit of cinematic history that creeps you out as it titillates your eyes with aesthetic wonder. But it also sounds good, thanks again in part to the late Toby Hooper. That iconic flashbulb sound, that eerie otherworldly whine that immediately conveys something bad is going to happen. The drones, the shrieks, the saws, the bulbs, the grunts, it's a sonic fever dream of horror. Every slasher that came after owes a huge debt to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but very few even compare. There's something so utterly perfect about this film. Yes, the sequel is also a huge fave, but only for taking an entire left-field turn into the full-on comedy and amping up the gore to ridiculous proportions. Leatherface still keeps popping up in sequels, prequels, and remakes aplenty, but the initial magic, that initial terrifying world of that 1974 original can't be touched. It still looks like a forbidden flick that you can't rip your eyes away from even 45 years later. Unforgettable and perfect. And that just about does it. Well, it does. That is it for our for our perfect horror episode, Perfect Horror Chapter 2. Um, just a huge thanks to our contributing uh, artists and podcasters and just friends of the show. Uh, big shout out to Scott Fawcett for his contribution for the amazing Moon Patrol, Matt Cunningham. Thank you so much for writing in. Horrible Horror Podcast, you guys did something great and I couldn't have been more happy that you guys agreed to be on the show. Thank you very much. Uh, and another big thanks to Full Price Podcast. It would not have been perfect horror without some Vincent Price in there, and I thank you very much for that. And also, too, big shout out to Cooper S. Beckett. Thank you so much. You guys heard him. His voice, like butter, and his opinions, amazing, too. So thank you so much, Cooper. And last but not least, Flanelog, Theo Radomsky. Thank you so much. It's that exact type of zesty opinion that we needed to close out the show, and I couldn't have done it without you. Thank you so much, everybody. And as always, this show was written, produced, and hosted by yours truly, Tyler Horlings. You guys can find me on Instagram and uh, Twitter at ACFO Podcast. And you can find me on Facebook at A Conversation for One Podcast, as well as Patreon at A Conversation for One Podcast, where you can find some exclusive episodes. Please, 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 I'm begging you. I'm on my knees here. Please, if you find it in your hearts, go to Apple Podcasts, go to... Um, stitcher or spotify and give me a nice beautiful five-star rating it takes a couple seconds and it goes a long way like i can't even describe how long a long way in helping this podcast out and if you got a little bit of time on your hands leave me a fun little review you can even say this podcast is groovy this podcast rad you know anything I would just appreciate it and it looks great and it feels amazing to me that you guys would do something like that for me um and uh yeah as always uh, you can find me just about anywhere you listen to podcasts. I think I actually have covered just about everywhere, but definitely on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, Google Play Music, and iHeartRadio for sure, and everywhere else, really. Um, thank you so much for listening, guys. Enjoy your October and your Halloween season, and look out for me as I drop a few new episodes in the meantime.
Until then, guys, be excellent to each other, stay rad, and Tyler out. And now, folks, it's time to say goodnight. We sincerely appreciate your patronage and hope we've succeeded in bringing you an enjoyable evening of entertainment. Please drive home carefully and come back again soon. Good night. The wonderful makeup done by Dick Clark. Dick Clark, holy fuck. The wonderful makeup done by Dick Smith.